Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz, and this is going to be a great podcast. I've got Sonia Kennebec, amazing documentary filmmaker on the show. She is going to talk about her new film, Reality Winner, which is the definitive story of hero and whistleblower reality winner. And you can watch that on Apple TV and Amazon. This film is based on original reporting over five years. Okay. And you're going to hear how Sonia and her team even won a lawsuit against the FBI to get the actual audio recording of reality's interrogation and her jail phone calls, which are exclusive to the film. It's a great, great story. And I'm excited to talk to Sonia about it. But before we do that, it's time for the reality check. And you know, I love sports. So let's talk about Shohei Otani going to the Dodgers 10 years, $700 million. I mean, you didn't think that the Dodgers could get anybody that was more expensive than Mookie Betts. Well, it's kind of just flabbergasting and I'm kind of speechless just to, to think about a player that is signing a $700 million contract. It makes you wonder like who's going to be the first billion dollar athlete, the first athlete to sign a billion dollar contract. It's probably going to be a soccer player, you know, or a you know, football player, however you want to want to say it. When you look at Otani, a, a two-way player, and, you know, there's debate whether he'll be able to even pitch again because of his injury, but his statistics, his abilities certainly warrant an incredible amount of money. Whether he's worth this contract, time will tell. But I think what's What's really telling about this is just how much this moves the marketplace. Because what will Aaron Judge get next? And what will Mike Trout get next? And this has a ripple effect with ticket prices. It has a ripple effect with TV deals that get renegotiated. And then it filters down to people like us, the consumers with cable costs, right? Why do cable bills constantly go up? It's the carriage fees. It's the local sports networks, right? Those regional sports networks. Well, it's not like the Dodgers are going to be like, well, we'll pay for this $700 million and we'll take the, you know, we'll lose money. Well, no, they've got to, they're going to renegotiate and they're going to ask for more money every time that they renegotiate their TV deals. It also, to me, athletes in other sports go, oh, well, I mean, if Otani's going to get 10 years and 700 million, what else, what else can I get? You know, the NBA for years was, you know, oh, we're underpaid, we're undervalued. And now you got Giannis signing five a five-year, $228 million contract with the Bucks, And then NFL for a long time, we're undervalued, we're not getting paid well enough, you know, and we need security because we could get injured and we'll, you know, our careers could be over at any moment. Joe Burrow from my Cincinnati Bengals and Joe Burrow, speaking of injuries out for the season. Well, prior to the season signed a five-year $275 million extension that makes him the highest paid player in NFL history. And when you look at soccer, that's where it's really kind of outrageous. Lionel Messi, four years, 674 million with Inter Miami and MLS. In the Saudi Pro League, like you want to talk about big, big money. Ronaldo, 
a two and a half year contract with the Saudi Pro League, 200 million a year. 200 million a year. So, yay for Shohei Otani. Yay for all these guys making a ton of money. But, whew, man, it all comes back to us. Sticking with sports, the Lakers take the first ever NBA in season tournament. And look, I was very skeptical of this whole thing. And even the first few games, I was kind of confused. Like, is this a regular season game? Is this an in-season tournament? Like, why do they have these crazy colors on the on the court? But the Lakers win over the Pacers was, it was hyped. Like, I was like looking forward to watching the game. Even the, you know, once they went to Vegas and you only had four teams left, like that was exciting. And you had 4.58 million viewers for that Lakers-Pacers game. And it was like, you know, Tyrese Halliburton, the young gun versus... LeBron, you know, the, the old vet who's like, you know, still looks incredible. And I got to be honest, you know, to have like this high powered game with a lot of money on the line in December, kudos to Adam Silver, man, like a great idea. And, you know, it gave it a little juice in December. What did you think of the first ever NBA in-season tournament? Hit me up. No script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. Okay, enough of that. Today, my guest is an amazing award-winning independent documentary filmmaker and investigative journalist with some incredible films and awards on her resume. Sonia Kennebec has directed National Bird, Enemies of the State, and the United States versus Reality Winner. And today we're gonna talk about her follow-up to that film. Filmed over five years, Reality Winner is a riveting, present tense documentary about the young NSA whistleblower who exposed Russian interference in U.S. elections, and she went to jail for it. This is an intimate and intense film, and you can really feel how hard Sonia worked on this and how much it means to her and to Reality and her family. I hope you enjoy the interview and you watch the movie. So... Sonia, this is your follow-up to the big reality winner uh, story. Five years in the making. I loved it. I I literally was almost, almost moved to tears. So my first question, you... It's okay to cry when you watch I, a film. I know. It's a good thing when you cry. It's a good thing. You did United States versus reality winner. And that was intense and... You know, I remember when I talked to you the last time, you talked about how hard that was and you didn't even get to interview her for that one. You had to make a decision. Okay, I want to continue down this path and follow this story. What made you decide, okay, I'm going to invest my time, my money, my effort into telling reality story all the way through the finish line? Yeah, it's it's kind of the big question always for a documentary filmmaker. When does it end, right? <laughs> and real life doesn't really end. And um, in a story like this, I think you have a lot of factors to consider when you put out a film, when you continue shooting, when you um, edit. And in our case, when we released United States versus Reality Winner, a lot of that was a ethical decision because we knew how badly how you know what under which terrible conditions reality was 
imprisoned and how bad she was doing in, in prison. And her family at that time, they were desperate for anyone to take notice. And we were there from, from the beginning and we had you know followed her story. Really, at, at that point, very few people knew about her story or cared. And so we decided to put out a film at that time um, to raise awareness for her. And then, of course, you know, we, we continued to be in close to the family and they told us when reality was quietly released from prison into a halfway house and invited us to, to be there and um, to be there in that first moment when they would you know, pick her up and bring her to the halfway house. And it wasn't public at the time. So we filmed that. And then I arranged with her to do the first interview with her. Which, which I did while she was still, you know, in home confinement, had her ankle bracelet and everything was still very fresh and very raw. And during the interview, I knew this has to be, this has to be part of the film. Um, it was just an exceptional interview. She was so honest and candid and vulnerable and, um, also funny. You know, she, she, she is a very sarcastic, um, person with a great sense of humor. So it had this full range of emotion in this one interview. And I, I knew it then I like, you know, I have to um, open up the film and, and create something new with it. Yeah. You did a really fantastic job with her interview because you, you allowed her, you could tell like she had a lot to say and you gave her that opportunity to tell the full story which, you know, she, I know she did the interview with 60 Minutes, but it was very driven by the folks at 60 Minutes, or at least it felt that way. So I give you a lot of credit for letting her tell her story. Yeah, that format is so different, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's, you know, it, it really fits a, a certain narrative. It's very, very edited. And what I wanted to give her was space and, um, and, and the opportunity to really tell her own story which she, you know, gets, you know, in length. And it also, you know, this, our interview being really the first interview, I think you can tell that she's, she's telling her story for the first time and, and, and really trusted me, you know, us being around for the entire time almost that, you know, everything was taking place and being with her family. So she, she really shared, you know, many of her, her deep emotions with me. You utilize the real FBI recordings of her arrest, which, and you use some really cool recreations to kind of bolster the drama and you do it very effectively. And it paints a very stressful scenario that she was in, you know, and I think all of us, we can kind of imagine what it would be like to be surrounded by a bunch of FBI agents who have weapons, but you know, until your reality winner and that's your real life um, situation, you, you don't get that. But I thought you did a fantastic job of making that, uh, you know, gave, giving the audience that feel. How did you guys go about getting the uh, FBI recordings? Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for asking that, because I, I think, you know, of course, when a film is, you know, made in, like, I, I want my films to be an experience. You know, I want people to watch it like, a movie and not think about, you know, all the work that goes into it, but it was substantial because yeah, the FBI, as you said, they don't just give out um, their, their materials at all. So we filed um, freedom of information acts early on in the, in the production and they declined them. 
And um, then as a next step, we filed an appeal with the Department of Justice um, for the FBI, the interrogation recording, but also other evidence um, from a file. And the Department of Justice actually sided with our film team and said the FBI should release um, this information to us. And they still didn't. And so eventually the only option that we had was to file a lawsuit. So um, my producing partner, Ines Hofmann-Kenner and I, with our you know small production company, Codebreaker Films, we filed a lawsuit against the FBI with support, pro bono support, fortunately, by the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. And, you know, going through, um, you know, this, this entire lawsuit, eventually we won. And so we received not only the the FBI um, recording of reality winners interrogation, but also the jail phone calls. So you can hear in the film, there's this, you know, you, you are like really part of the story because you can hear reality's first phone calls to her family. And, you know, we got permission to the family to request those as well. And you can here in real time, you know, just a day, one or two days after she was arrested, how she's reaching out to her family. And while they were traveling from Texas to Georgia and what she's, you know, talking to them on the phone about on the way, the first phone call with her sister. And um, some of this evidence was actually used against her in court afterwards at the pretrial hearings. So, um, that is really, you know, uh, important to us to to get this this material, which is exclusive to our film, and give the full picture. And I think particularly this um, interrogation recording is so valuable because people ask, you know, why why did she confess? You know, what like what 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 brought her to this point? And I think if you just read the transcript, you don't really, you know, you don't get the tone. You don't get the fear in her voice. And we not only had the original recording, but we were able to film in the room that she was interrogated in. So what you see in these recreations, that's you know pretty much how it took place. She was in this tiny room with a back to her wall, these two, you know, pretty like tall FBI agents. I actually saw them in the pretrial um, hearing, so I know what they looked like, were facing her, and then there was this push and pull. You know, being nice on the one side, talking about dogs, and then you know, being like you know, you know, tough and 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 pushing her again, and and she had just you know left the military, so she she had served for you know six years, so you also have to you know understand that she had learned to follow orders, and all of these dynamics, I think you can actually hear them in the original interrogation recording. Yeah, I I think. Everybody has seen so many TV shows and we all think, oh, well, call a lawyer. I'll call a lawyer. But those FBI agents, they do such a good job of making her feel like, oh, it's not a big deal. You're a good person. We know you're not. This isn't who you are. And like making her feel like this isn't all she has to do is just tell them what happened. Just tell us what happened. And I can totally see how she was like, I, I don't, yeah, I'm not going to. And then they never tell her, you may, you know, you should call a lawyer. You may want to call a lawyer. You're in a lot of trouble. Like I can totally see why she didn't hit the panic button and go, okay, I'm calling the lawyer. Yeah. And what I've also, you know, with, with whistleblowers in particular, um, but I think, you know, all of us, when you, when you do something like this and, you know, in her case, when you blow the whistle, 
you're doing it because you so deeply, strongly believe it is in the public interest. You know, her disclosure was about election security, telling the public that Russians tried to interfere with, with the U.S. presidential election. So, you know, from, from her perspective, she, she did something good for the public. So she wants to explain herself. And I think that is, you know, very common that if you believe you did something good and something right and something moral, you want to explain it. You don't. You don't think. You know, I'm not hiding a crime here. You know, I, I want to. I want to talk about it, and I want to. You know, I, I really want to explain it. And as you said too, um, you know, listening carefully to to the interrogation, they didn't read her Miranda rights. They didn't tell her that she was free to leave. And you know, very often in a situation, people actually comply. And it's, you know, it's, it's only, I think in our, you know, seat at home, when we watch a TV show, it's like, you know, you're not under stress. It's not you in that situation. It was entirely surprised. Oh, yeah. So it's easy to say, oh, that's how I would react it. But how often do you have the situation you are out somewhere and something, you know, surprising happens yeah. to you and you do not act the way that you think you should have acted. And then afterwards you're like, oh, I should have said this or should have said right. that or I should have not said anything at all. So I think it's very human um, behavior, um, what, you know, the, the way she was reacting. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about, you know, as a whistleblower, it was one document that Reality Winner released and it revealed the Russian interference in our elections, right? And she sent it to The Intercept, which I'm so glad that you talked about, that you put a light on The Intercept and their role in this. And what I didn't realize is that the folks at The Intercept sent the document back to the NSA. And I don't give away too much about what happened, but I, I remember at the time I was always, I was like, well, The Intercept is supposed to be this organization that protects Whistleblowers, that had been their reputation. How does she feel about the folks at The Intercept? And how do you, like, what is your kind of feeling towards these people? I mean, this is kind of your world, intelligence, national security that you kind of cover, all your docs do. How do you view them? Because that's still, they're still in existence and they still cover the national security world. Yeah, it's 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 a very complicated, um, you know, like case for me personally because I know the risk that you are taking when you do national security reporting. It's substantial, and um, working with whistleblowers, um, you know, it takes a lot of care, and there's always a risk. So, you know, in a way, reporting and including the Intercept in the film, and they participated which was very important to us. You know, it, it, it took us quite a while to get them to, to participate in the film, but their perspective was very, very important to me. So, and, and I see, you know, I really see both sides, you know, the, the risk, um, but then on the other side, they made some very, very serious mistakes. And part of the reason reality was so, you know, caught off guard when the FBI knocked at her door is that they came to her two days before the article was even published. And that was because, you know, what you were just saying, the Intercept actually sent the document, you know, back to the government um, to verify it because they didn't believe it was real. And 
and you know the intercept was founded on you know exposing you know government misconduct and the snowden disclosures and they actually actively solicit classified information and solicit you know whistleblowers you know to 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 share information with them so i think they have an even higher bar in you know source protection and and you know and we go pretty deeply into it into the film so i think you know anyone who ever wants to do any reporting or understand how you know reporters work in this in this space you know it's basically like in the space of like yeah, you know, whistleblowing and national security and 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 leaks. You know, should watch this film because there are you know real mistakes that can happen because they you know the 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 FBI and the intelligence agencies you know they have you know they they want to find these you know people from the inside and they want to stop these disclosures and that's why they came down so hard on reality. Because they wanted to make an example out of her, like that's what her whole case was about. You know, at least they said it's not me. You know, making this up. They actually, the government, the prosecutor was saying, you know, it was supposed to be deterrence. Um, her her sentencing, and yeah, and for reality, I mean, she speaks out in a film about it as well. Um, she does not have a favorable view of um, you know, this whole situation and the intercept. Understandably so. You talked to Edward Snowden, you know, and got his POV on all this. Uh, you know, I found, you know, it's an interesting dichotomy in in their stories. And I'm curious as to like, you know, Edward kind of has become his own persona and, and his own, you know, has created his own journey and his, you know, I mean, he, he has a mythology almost reality winner who did something you know very different but because you know she was turned in didn't flee the country and take refuge in now a horrific you know government uh so I'm, but yet is not almost worshipped by certain groups of people how do you view kind of the two stories comparatively um, and and why people don't kind of like glom on to oh well she's a snowden type hero so uh, I, I think, you know, whistleblowers are always seen so differently by, you know, depending on what, what politics people have. And, um, and I just, you know, always want to remind, you know, everyone that, you know, whistleblowing um, in itself, you know, means that you are disclosing information in the public interest. That it's not, you know, and, and often government like kind of said, you know, calls them leakers. And it sounds like they were, you know, doing it in, you know, for personal gain, which in, you know, tr in, as a true whistleblower, that's not the case. Usually the, the repercussions are so serious. Like they, they disclose information in spite of themselves and, um, and they do it, yeah, to, to expose waste, fraud, abuse, government misconduct. So both, you know, Reality, as well as Edward Snowden, are are whistleblowers. Um, their disclosures were very different. You know, Edward Snowden um, disclosed you know evidence of of mass surveillance and many many documents, um, and and you know was very strategic about um, you know the way he was studying other whistleblowers. And Reality herself says that um, you know, of course, and as part of the intelligence community. 
you learn about, you know, Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden um, as these, you know, the, these big whistleblowers. But she said she didn't study sort of the smaller people. And, and that's where she, she says herself, you know, this difference, reality was disclosing one single document. Um, the Intercept published five pages about election interference. And she, I believe, you know, never expected that she would be treated this harshly. You know, I think she was always ready to take the consequences for her disclosure. But what happened to her was that she was kept in pretrial detention for more than a year under, you know, extraordinary, horrible conditions, which, you know, you really become part of it in the film because we filmed the entire you know, time, you know, with her family while she was in, in, in jail. And we also have these jail phone calls and, you know, the interrogation. And we um, attended um, the trial, you know, pretrial hearings. And, and then she got the longest sentence a whistleblower media source ever received in federal court, which was um, five years and three months in prison. I feel like you did a, the, the other thing you did really well is make this a human story, you know, uh, do a great job with the intrigue and the drama, but reality's mom is an amazing character, Billy. You know, you're along for the ride, you know, which is so gut-wrenching as she's trying to get, you know, she's gathering support for reality and trying to get, she wants her daughter out. Talk to me a little bit about Billy. Yeah, so watching Billy's journey was, you know, of course, you know, heartbreaking. Um, I think you know, how her story can really resonate with such a wide audience is that she did not make the choice to disclose the document. You know, she was just a mom. And, um, and you know, her family, Reality's family is from rural Texas. They, they've always, you know, they, I think they're very service oriented. Um, Reality's mother worked for Child Protection Services and that was instilled in reality early on. But they, you know, I think they would consider themselves before all of this happened, just like very regular people. And all of that changed overnight. Like all of a sudden, without her ever expecting to have to deal with like the U.S. American justice system and pretrial hearings and prisons and jails, like all of a sudden her entire family was, you know, like, yeah, you know, really got got into this situation where they had to deal with all of this. And and I think that's really something that, you know, you can imagine everyone, you know, to be in a situation. It was the sister as well, you know, the sisters, all of her communication with reality, and they were very close, you know, the, the, the two of them are very close, and they just would constantly you know, chat and be on Facebook and do messages and joke. The, the, the whole family is very funny and very sarcastic. They are constantly making, you know, like, you know, they're joking with each other. And so their messages were taken out of context and then used against reality in court, like jokes were used against her in court. And, and I think that experience really changed the family. And what you can see on the screen, like, you know, I think they all have become, you know, particularly Billy Reality's mother became much more politically active and, and just so involved and just, you know, seeing all, you know, the injustices. And till this day, um, I really, you know, think the, the film shows this like transition, like 
one decision, like one single moment that reality you know, took to, to, to blow the whistle and then you know, not just her life, but her family's life was turned upside down. Yeah, and I think it, it really, you know, shows how, how things can shift, you know, how your life can shift really in one moment. I want to ask you about her prison stay and how tough that was for her. I mean, prison is obviously awful, but she was bulimic and she was sort of cutting herself. Like this was something that was more than just, oh, she's going to live, she's going to go through white collar prison. We, this was during the Black Lives Matter protests. So they went on lockdown. Can you talk about how these four years, five, five years have affected reality winner? Yeah, that it has impacted her, you know, very, very strongly. And she, she is very open in it um, about her mental health challenges in, in the film because she, she said, you know, she, she has been suffering from bulimia for a long time. And the way she stays healthy and alive is by her workout routine. You know, that's what she really has to, has to focus on. And what she was experiencing first in this um, jail where she was in pretrial detention, which was not set up for long-term detentions, but she was in there for more than a year, was that it, she didn't have, you know, regular outside time where she actually could follow the routine that kept her healthy and, you know, it's been keeping her, honestly, as she would say, alive. And and then later on in, in, in prison, she was in prison during covid and the pandemic um, in her specific prison in Carswell um, was where the first woman, Andrea Circle Bear, died of COVID. The woman was imprisoned, um, pregnant, and you know, a Native American woman, and and she died. That was the you know the the first um, death of someone who was detained. And it was like it was a small like. It, it, a small drug, um, you know, some, some drugs were found in her house. Like, you know, is that, you know, that's not supposed to be a death sentence. You know, is, is that a reason to put um, a person who is, you know, very pregnant and very vulnerable, and had, you know, in, in, into a, a prison environment? And so, um, you know, reality was in, in that same prison. And then also they had power outages. You know, there were horrific stories. She was harassed, like sexually harassed as well. And, and you know, like she, she really went through a horrific time and not just her. And I think that's what, you know, reality really came out with um, from this experience is that she is strongly opposed to, you know, imprisoning, detaining most people. Um, you know, she, she's opposed to prison because of her first person experience and what she's been seeing, these like horrific conditions, like absolutely inhumane conditions. Um, at, at a specific prison too, when they had like, a, a power outage, they didn't have water. And, and, you know, it's like, and, you know, through her story, because we were following her so, so closely, you know, all of our team, you know, we, we were like, this is unbelievable what's happening, not just to her, but to everyone, like so many people. And I, I think that's what, you know, the, this film has a lot of layers and I try to do that through, through my work. You know, there's a personal story, but there's also 
you know, much larger story. And, and part of the story is giving people insight into prison conditions, into a justice system. You know, how do you defend yourself um, when you are just like one person with few resources against the United States and then seeing how other people are treated, you know, who have much more resources, you know, former President Donald Trump, who um, is now indicted under the same Espionage Act as Reality Winner. And they found, you know, like they found thousands of documents, um, hundreds of them were, you know, classified, some of them at the highest levels. And, you know, he's not and, you know, he wasn't immediately yeah. interrogated and arrested. Yeah. So, so you now all of that, I think, you know, comes through in this film as well. You know, all these layers who gets to tell the story, what was happening at the same time, you know, the investigation of, you know, election interference and Trump's war against leakers that now he's caught up himself. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a document, I think, um, of our, you know, the past five years. You don't have top secret documents in your bathroom? I mean, I, you don't keep your, no? no? Or share them, you know, at like a dinner table yeah, and like in boxes. It? No? No? It's, it's real. I mean, we could, like, that's such a real life twist. I know. I know. That right? we could have never, never foreseen. And that's why yeah. we made it part of the film as yeah. well. And, and, and what I find so fascinating, you know, knowing, of course, you know, all the materials, so and like watching this film over and over again is that even I, like, when I watch it now in the theater and then I hear all these sound bites that we have Trump saying, we got to get those leakers. You know, they're going to pay a really big price for leaking. And everyone in the audience, like, oh my God, wow. You can hear them gushing. You know, it's like, we're laughing. It's like, this is crazy because all of a sudden, and that's the beauty of documentary film, it's, it's, you know, it changes. It changes with, because it's real life. And all of a sudden, you see a different film. And you're like, it's mind blowing to see all of this material now. And it's like, Oh my God, what have we lived through in the last five years? Absolutely. All right. Last thing I want to ask you is about getting this movie made. The mar- I don't have to tell you that the market's a little bit, a little bit struggling right now that, that our industry is a little all over the map these days. Talk a little bit about people who kind of gave you a push, people who helped you out. How did you get this thing across the finish line into theaters and now into Amazon and Apple TV Plus so that folks can watch it? Yeah, I mean, you know yourself in, you know, filmmaking is incredibly difficult. Independent documentary films, um, I think each of them is a miracle that they even, you know, happen. And, and, And I really want to make a clear distinction between you know, there, there's, you know, reality TV, there's commissioned work, you know, there's like, you know, there's a, a range and, you know, and I think all types of filmmaking is hard, but independent documentary films um, are often made by filmmakers who invest three, five, 10 years of their lives. And, um, you know, and our time is, is, is not paid for um, most often in, in, in this type of work. You know, my particular case, you know, my films are grants and donation funded very often. And so you're constantly fundraising. You're constantly, you know, a lot of my work is trying to raise um, the funding to do, you know, independent investigative 
you know, filmmaking and, and, and journalism as well, that's completely original. And, and that's like when, you know, when you ask that question, like I, I have also the sadness because I think some of the best journalism and the most, you know, some of these like, stories, like, people wouldn't know about them without documentary films, without independent documentary films. It, it would just be lost to history. Like our footage, you know, our documentation of this case, the FBI records, it wouldn't exist and be out in the public if we didn't invest our time and so many resources. And yeah, you know, we're so grateful for our funders. You know, the Riva and David Logan Foundation was, um, you know, our biggest supporter. And we, we had multiple other funders and actually a very big deal, um, as well was um, a Kickstarter campaign, which is a lot of work. Crowdfunding is like, doesn't come easy. They it's weeks, weeks, months of preparation, but um, there is a beauty in having the public actually, you know, showing you, oh, we want this film to happen. We want this film to come out. And we had 500, like 35 or so individual donors which is really incredible, I think, because, you know, the, the, these are people who, you know, like, yeah, you know, they, they, they are really, you know, sharing some of their hard-earned money with this project and with our film. And they actually made it happen because at some point we ran out of money. You know, we had grants and donations. Um, we had released a prior version, you know, for these ethical reasons that I had described. And then we wanted to continue filming. And how do you do that? You know, I'm not, you know, a trust fund kid. So we did a crowdfunding campaign and it, and it worked. Then, you know, we had theaters like IFC Center um, take this film on, Lemley Theaters um, in, in LA. And, and that was really, you know, really, really crucial that we had these theaters who believed in, in our work. Uh, people like Rosie O'Donnell, Alex Winter, who moderated um, screenings. So it, it really was an entire community who made this happen but it is so hard and i all i can do is really encourage you know foundations you know um the ida and in in los angeles berkeley film foundation you know where our funders we we had you know larger and smaller funders um you know fork films as well and just you know really invest in this type of work because of what it gives people you know for for years to come is education it's history it's truthful reporting um and it's stories that i think help people yes 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 and yes all right <laughs> the, the film is reality winner sonia kennebec is the director five years and it's all worth it Tell people where can they watch it. It's on Apple TV. It is um, on Amazon Prime. I think it's on Google Play. You can uh, rent it. You can buy it. Please watch it. And, you know, if it meant something to you, you know, rate it, review it, share it with people. Because that's the only way, you know, as you know, independent filmmakers, we can get you know, the word out is by people. And, and that's how we got this far, you know, by people just... Um, sharing and 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 you know uh, telling folks about our our work and um, so we can continue doing it um, but yeah reality winner is the title it's the true story the documentary all right well thank you for joining no script no problem appreciate it thank you special thanks to sonia kennebec please see reality winner either amazon or apple plus definitely check that out 
Now, in case you missed it, Axel F, the fourth movie in the Beverly Hills Cop franchise, saw its trailer drop this week. And I got to be honest, like it put a smile on my face, right? As a Gen Xer, Beverly Hills Cop was a classic comedy in the 80s. And seeing that trailer kind of made me, you know, made me remember that. And so I think this is going to do extremely well on Netflix that, you know, even somebody like me who I'm a churner, man, I will, if something's, if this month does not look good on Netflix, I will cancel my subscription, you know, spend my money somewhere else. I will definitely be, you know, looking forward to watching this Beverly Hills Cop sequel. But I think a bigger question that I pose to my listeners here, the fact that this is going to Netflix and not, they're not trying to kind of do what Indiana Jones did, you know, with this, you know, fifth movie in their franchise. And and it didn't do well at the box office, the Beverly Hills Cop, that they're going, you know, we're not going to make this seem like it's just as big as, as the first three movies, right? They're just going to Netflix. They're not even trying to do this big, huge theatrical release. They don't think that they can do, you know, Top Gun Maverick. I think it's really interesting that they're just going, you know, Eddie had a, a really good success with you people and we're going to follow that up. You know, we give him another, another crack at Netflix. He has a clear, he clearly has a very dedicated audience. And, and I just kind of, to me, it just goes to show that like, there's nothing spectacular coming out of the Netflix movies, right? But people are just so programmed with the algorithm that, that there's something to watch, they'll watch it. And if you have a star like Eddie Murphy or JLo with the mother, right? Or extraction with Chris Hemsworth, right? People are just going to watch those and they're going to go, oh, it's the new movie with Eddie Murphy. It's the new movie with Chris Hemsworth. And if you're a Gen Zer, Beverly Hills Cop, you know, Netflix will probably throw all three of the other movies on there and you'll eat those up and then you'll watch Beverly Hills Cop. Like it makes business sense, but I do think it's very telling as to where we are headed in the film industry and why it does make things tough for the theaters. Let me know what you think. No script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. All right. That's going to do it for another episode of no script, no problem. Please remember to subscribe, download and rate the show at five stars. It's available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcast, Stitcher, Amazon music, audible, and tune in. You can also find it at bleed.com and at bleed podcast. Follow me on Twitter, blue sky post news, Instagram, threads, and Facebook. You can also email any questions you have to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.